Welcome to Raise the Line with Osmosis.org, seeking solutions with leading experts on how to increase healthcare capacity so people can get the care they need during the COVID-19 crisis and beyond. Hi, I'm Dr. Rishi Desai. I'm the Chief Medical Officer at Osmosis. And on this episode of Raise the Line, we're going to hear from someone who's providing patient care in the epicenter of the COVID-19 outbreak in the United States and frankly around the world. He is Dr. Conrad Fisher, an infectious disease specialist. He's also a residency program director, vice chair of medicine, and chair of the ethics committee at Brookdale University Hospital Medical Center in New York City. He's also a professor of medicine at Toro College of Medicine in New York and the author of leading publications to help students prepare for the USMLE and specialty board exams, including a best-selling book, Master the Board Series. Dr. Fisher, thanks so much for being with us here today. So tell us a little bit about yourself and the role you're playing in Brookdale day to day. I mean, you're at the center of, of this. So what is it like? I'm in a hospital now where we have opened up two intensive care units. We've opened a whole brand new patient floor. And we have, what I like to think, is a colorectal surgeon stepping up to run a COVID floor because we had nobody else. And I have the blessing of having the wonderful chief resident in psychiatry acting as my intern because we need the staff. I was in 10 COVID positive rooms just today. Oh, wow. And what is that like when you go in there and you're on your 10th one? Are you thinking, you know, I'm likely to get it? Do you think you've ever had it or been exposed to it? I was diagnosed positive two weeks ago. I was very lucky that our hospital was the first and only hospital for 10 days to have an in-house same day test. That's pathetic. It's pathetic that the hospital's we're all left to ver- verify and validate their own tests. I don't think that you need me to talk about personal protective equipment because everybody understands that. A face mask, you get an N95, the gowning. I personally wear a double gown, one in front, one in back, gloving. I think the thing that to bring here is what I do, even though I'm a board certified infectious disease doctor, I ask my residents, I go, I want you to watch me putting on my own personal protective equipment, not because I'm such a super genius, but because when people are tense, we make mistakes. And this has to be the Atul Gawande checklist moment where we don't say, I'm so smart, I know better than you. We say, hey, check me, watch me put this on. Did I miss anything? in my breaking technique. And one is to use that fear to say, double check me. Number two is the wonderful sense of my my ashram of people who actually tie my gown behind me to make sure that Dr. Fisher is safe. So on the day-to-day, everyone is frightened. Do you feel like, because I've heard about this protocol out of Wuhan as well, where in, in the beginning, Folks were wearing, like you said, just like an N95 and thinking they were good to go. And then they realized how contagious this is and how easy it is to get a little bit of the virus inside. And that can make you real sick, even if you're young and healthy and so, you know, so on and so forth. And so they've started implementing this policy. And so I'm, I'm really intrigued that you guys are doing it too. How widespread is that? Do you know that other you know, hospitals outside of New York are doing that now? Doing which thing? Yeah, so specifically having a checklist and having partners where you watch me, I watch you. You know, if I mess up, you let me know, things like that. The concept of the checklist, the problem is it's the right thing to do. 
but we are all making it up, unfortunately, on our own. There are 5,000 acute care hospitals in the United States. And even if you narrowed it down, I only have, there are only 395 people like me, which is residency program directors, who have to be conscious of the role modeling that we play. And so there is no centralized plan. There is nothing coming out of our national leaders. There's no FEMA-derived plan. And so we are each left in our own hospitals to try to the best of our ability to do what we think is right from the best data. But how much data is there? So no, the checklist is what we should be doing. Are we doing it everywhere? No. Is there a national coordinated plan? No, you have a lot of very hardworking, intelligent, committed people who are trying to do the best they can. But do I know for sure that what we're doing is better or even as good as the other 5,000 hospitals or the other 395 residency program directors? I hope so, but I don't know. Has there been any effort on the state levels? I recognize that federally this hasn't happened, and that's both sad, disappointing, but also not surprising. How about the state level? Have you seen any sort of coordination uh, with Governor, you know, Governor Cuomo's leadership? Yeah, Governor Cuomo is certainly uh, outstanding when it comes to a stand-up fight like this. He's a strong guy. Uh, he um, uh, provides a sense of confidence because he doesn't sugarcoat problems. Uh, but there are things he can't do. For instance, Governor Cuomo, he's very hands-on. He's on with our CEO. How can I help you? How are you doing down there? Do you need PPE? But the guy can't 3D print nurses. And what we're at now, we're at an issue where we have an enormous nursing outage that is very, very desperate. We have 125 boarders uh, in our emergency room are COVID positive patients, okay? And how do you get through even moving the beds? It's like a Tetris game. And by the way, it's better to laugh than to cry because if you felt the horror of the situation, we have 10 people a night who die. And so the governor is doing the best that he can, but he can't just create nurses. And what it needed is a coordinated federal response. If you or I were a, a, a captain or major in the army and we got shot, or some one of somebody that we were in Iraq, the, our patient would be airlifted out and flown to Ramstein Air Base or Aviano Air Base in Italy or Insulik Air Base in Turkey or the other places that we have in that region, and we would have been flo- had ill people flown out to where there was medical care. And I do not understand why our federal government cannot fly nurses who want to volunteer to come into New York and in fact put them through having to go through an agency nurse where they have to go and say I have to be paid for A, B, and C. So the response should be to put a busload of 50 nurses on a private jet, on a jet blue plane at our doorstep. How about tonight? That makes perfect sense. And, and you know, it gets this whole issue. I think that there's almost two conversations happening. One is this conversation where you're describing the, the painful reality of seeing people die and the need for nurses tonight. And then this other reality where I think folks are looking at the flattening of the curve in New York and saying, hey, maybe it's time to reopening our, our, our economy. Uh, we might have kind of uh, gotten past the worst of it. So how do you respond to that? What are your thoughts on that? Uh, if politics 
could be sued for malpractice. That would be what you would do. You would be suing people for malpractice to open up the country for the economics of this is irresponsible. Yeah, I, I mean, I couldn't agree with you more. I think that it's disappointing that there's still states that never shut down in the first place and, and continue to stay open uh, even right now as we speak about this. The epicenter of this, Brooklyn, Queens, and the Bronx, we have received no ventilators from the federal government. And our hospital, our leadership is going crazy trying to do the right thing. They're desperate to do anything they can that's right. And they're getting the best support the state can give them. But what we needed was certainly if we had worked on having a standardized test, our PCR and our blood antibody test would be ready by now instead of people still scrambling for testing. Yeah, it's, it's abysmal and it's gone on for months and especially the antibody testing as well. You know, you mentioned you're positive and it would be good to know. Uh, I was going to ask you if you knew if you're IgG positive or if you have any sense on that. I don't know that I'm IgG positive. I'm going to press next week because my outstanding chairman of pathology was gracious enough to um, go with the pressure, I should say, go with my request, my begging, to get um, PCR testing for all the staff. I was a very early and prominent supporter of test the staff, get them out of the hospital, get to keep your seven to 10 days out, get out. And then you come back. I have a residency program of 93 residents. 33 of them have had coronavirus. I'm happy to say that only seven are out sick. Take your seven to 10 days out, come back in. So they're going out and they're coming back in. And I do wish, though, that we had easy testing for the antibody right now so we don't just have to assume it. The other big problem is intubation. Uh, you've got to, again, for a medical audience here, you've got to be able to have a capacity, not just to run RRTs, rapid responses, you've got to be able to have capacity to have those anesthesiologists there to intubate. And the problem is they are overwhelmed. You're doing a 10 dead in a, a 10 dead a night means more than one code. That's the negative outcomes. What about being able to get up to intubate those people in five to 10 minutes? So that is desperately needed. So we need to change our paradigm and we now need to immediately train more people to intubate. So we're using our ED residents for that. And we're even asking some of the medicine residents to intubate just as a safety. And they're like, yo, Conrad, Conrad, come on. You don't want to put that responsibility in the residents. I'm like, I'm not putting it on them. First of all, they volunteered because these people are fundamentally heroic. The other thing is this, think of it like the volunteer fire department. We don't want to replace the pros, but if your house is on fire, I'll take whoever I can get. Exactly. And I think it's an interesting analogy because I think a lot of people don't recognize that a house is still on fire. I think a lot of folks look at the data and think, oh, maybe the fire is going out. And in fact, I think one of the concerns is that not only is the house still on fire, but it's burning all over the nation now, rather than just in one area. Let's look at the DSM for that. A fixed, persistent belief, if it doesn't hurt you, is called delusional disorder, okay? But if you have a fixed, persistent belief, and you're not taking care of your activities of daily living, 
called social isolation, rapid expansion of testing, clinical trials. So if you want to actually study these things, it's not delusional disorder, it's worse. That's called schizophrenia. It's in the DSM, okay? So those people who say not to study these things with a clinical trial, to just make statements about drugs that are unproven, to not have testing available, to say that more testing is available than is actually available, this is a, this is a psychiatric illness. Are there any other final thoughts you have for, for med students and residents that are just entering the fray? Maybe they're not there yet, and maybe their hospital doesn't look and feel like New York, but it might. What would your advice be? Your calling is sacred because some people will look at the world and say, how can this have happened? And for those who are believing people, and I don't often speak this way in scientific organizations, and say, how can there be this suffering and pain? Divine and cosmic forces of goodness and truth and beauty and hope reach the earth continuously, but only to the level of the human heart and mind. And the implementation is up to you. So if you want to help me and you're not in a position to be able to send nurses or send PPE, but you wish to help the fundamental yearning for goodness to help the other people in our community, our world, study medicine, study continuously, study even the things that are not COVID, become super current, because if you're polishing your skills in the event, the time will come when you will be able to save a life and you will have protected humanity. And that's who you are, the protector of the world. Fall not into despair, because despair saves neither this world nor the next, Arjuna. But stand up and fight. That's a very inspiring, inspiring message. I appreciate the eloquence with which you conveyed it. That's amazing. Thank you so much for being with us today, Dr. Fisher. I know that uh, your, your day is very busy. So, you know, these minutes that you spent with us are, are very treasured. Thank you so much. Take care. You're welcome. For more information on how you can help raise the line and flatten the curve, go to osmosis.org COVID-19. If you like this podcast, please share it on your social channels. You can also subscribe to the series and check out all of our podcasts at osmosis.org slash raise the line podcast. Thank you.